Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and we are talking on episode 118 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, uh, where we're working our way chronologically through the Criterion Collection. I'll have a little comment to say about that chronological thing in just a minute, but uh, the subject tonight is another Bruce Lee film. This is the third Bruce Lee film we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, I think it was a previous season or two, we've covered The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, and a couple guys who've joined me for those conversations are back, so let's go ahead and introduce the guests. Uh, first of all, it's been pretty regular here as of late, uh, Richard Doyle, welcome back once again. Thanks, good to be here. Absolutely. Definitely enjoy having you on board and uh, digging into these genre flicks. And then here comes our second guest tonight, our uh, Bruce Lee martial arts specialist, uh, the one and only Michael Wirth. Michael, thank you for joining us once again tonight. Oh, my pleasure. It seems like when Bruce Lee comes kicking, David comes calling. Oh, that's right. Well, I, I like hearing your, your uh, backstories, your anecdotes, as well as your inside knowledge of uh, some of the dazzling, uh, you know, techniques and moves, stuff that uh, I just sort of gape and gawk at and say, how did he do that? <laughs> you can help us break it down on the technical side. And, of course, you're just a, a great commentator and a good guy to have oh, on the program. So I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, we'll give you a chance to catch us up on what you've been up to lately. I know you've always got interesting projects in the works, and we'll we'll touch base with you sure. on, uh, on the other side of uh, what you've been up to. And I'm sure you probably have some some things to say even in the middle of the, of the conversation. But, uh, like I said at the opening here, I, I have a little bit of a mea culpa. For any of you listeners who are fastidious about this uh, chronological timeline we're on, uh, on my spreadsheet... Uh, uh, According to IMDb, The Way of the Dragon was released on June 1st, 1972. And so we're kind of getting the, through the halfway point of 1972 with all these films we've been discussing, and we've got a lot more ahead of us. But I was recently listening to an audiobook by Michael Polly, uh, who actually appears on one of the supplements on the Criterion disc here. Matthew. Uh, or is it Matthew yeah. Polly? Yeah, thank you for catching me sure. on that. Uh, he, uh, he mentions in his chapter on The Way of the Dragon that it basically took the whole year of 1972 to film. He, Bruce ran over budget. Of course, he was a first-time director. Uh, they hoped for this to be a summer blockbuster, but it wasn't released until the end of December of that year. So, um, you know, I didn't discover that until just recently that IMDb apparently gave us some bunk information because it even <laughs> says that it was released in New York in, I think, July of 1972, which is kind of crazy because... Uh, this film didn't even come out in the United States until after yeah. Enter the Dragon, and it was originally titled Return of the Dragon. So, you know, there's there's some interesting stuff, but I guess IMDb is not the authoritative source that I have uh, trusted it to be all these years. But when I discovered that, we already had this episode planned and, and in the works, and my guests were already confirmed in lineups. So I said, we're just going to go ahead with it uh, as if... The Way of the Dragon was that summer blockbuster of 1972, an alternate reality, perhaps. But uh, yeah, so we are here to talk about this, uh, I think, a, a pretty endearing and pretty impressive film from Bruce Lee. Uh, as I said, very kind of off to the side here, this is the one and only film that Bruce Lee directed and wrote and was a co-producer, of course, as well as the star. And it was the last film, sadly, that was released uh, in his lifetime. Uh, even though Enter the Dragon was right on the verge, it, it was released after his uh, tragic death. Um, so this is a pretty important film in the career of Bruce Lee. I know that there are 
those out there. I've read the the negative reviews or the dismissive who kind of maybe find it a little bit inferior. But I uh, I really enjoyed this film. I think there's a lot of really you know, admirable qualities to it. Uh, as a first-time director, you know, he's still finding his way a little bit here, but I'm really eager to just jump into the conversation and uh, and get it going. So that's my preamble for now. Uh, Richard, let me ask you just a little bit. What's your history with this film, and what's your kind of opening take on The Way of the Dragon? Uh, I believe this is the first Bruce Lee film I saw. I um, When I was in high school, I had some a group of friends that we used to get together and rent enough movies to watch movies all night in his basement Mm -hmm. and this was one of them one night and that sort of stands out um i like this film quite a bit i wish it got going a little bit quicker i i i I don't particularly like the comedy in it and the fact that there's 40 minutes straight of it sort of at the beginning is a little bit of a tough slug for me but once this film really gets going i think it's uh it, it, it is in many ways one of his best films it's like one of the first time it's one of the only ones that he made where you know it's all his choreography and there isn't a strange mix of like leaping martial arts and bruce's more street savvy stuff and mm-hmm. uh the final fight with chuck norris is so good you get to see it again in game of death <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, it's de- that's definitely a legendary sequence, and I definitely want to, you know, dig into that that scene, you know, in in some depth because I think it is, it's an amazing, you know, so many elements to it. So I think we'll we'll look forward to analyzing that. So yeah, so it sounds like you know, you know, there there's the action sequences. It does take a while to warm up. I do agree. Some of the comedy isn't maybe as funny as perhaps Bruce or others found it. But, uh, you know, I, I had a few things to say about that slow uh, slow burn opening there. Uh, Michael, kind of give us your opening thoughts on The Way of the Dragon. Yeah, this was actually the last Bruce Lee movie I had seen besides Game of Death. I'd already seen Enter the Dragon, which was my my uh, debut of Lee in my life, and then Fist of Fury and Chinese Connection. So I, I caught up with this one after. Um, I, I agree with you guys. I think there's there's this is... I don't want to say it's polarizing per se, but there is a split of people who love this film or 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 dislike it. You know, I mean, people is like Tarantino have <laughs> have just outright said he's a terrible director, and Stephen Toe, who's, who's said similar, but um, I I I like it too, and I'm and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with. And even Bruce Lee said after doing it, he goes, "I'm satisfied, but not entirely satisfied." So he was he was catching his own um, faults with it, but it is, you know, it's a fun way. And speaking on the comedy part that you were mentioning, I, I think it really, the comedy that was intended was so geared up towards his indigenous audience that yes, for many, yes. it was missing along the way. And some of the parts that I don't know if you guys had noticed or not, but you know, that were, were removed ultimately from the Western screenings because they didn't make sense. Like the one on the scene on the toilet and, and, the scene where he goes in to get the soup in the beginning. And some of these scenes were cut from most of the, at least the early uh, prints. Yeah, the Return of the Dragon version that was basically, let's just get to the good stuff. You know, people want to see Bruce Lee busting out the nunchakus and and kicking (laughs) ass and all of that. And and you're right, it it is. It's it's a, at least, what, 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, as Richard said. 
Uh, there's a few times where Bruce is kind of doing some kicks, right. and, you know, air punches and stuff. He's he's showing his techniques and you know with some nicely embellished sound effects, some swooshes <laughs> and snaps and things of that sort. So you know you're getting a little taste, a little hint of what's to come. But you know, just as with um, in Fist of Fury, I I really appreciated that historical context. You know, the rivalry between. Uh, the, the Chinese and the Japanese kind of uh, you know occupants or colonialists or or uh, you know the oppressors you know I, you know that that historic context gave that movie a little bit of extra depth and resonance that that I appreciated this here as well that that was the part that I did find very um, you know endearing uh, and 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 kind of winsome is that you're really getting a sense of Bruce Lee speaking to his his home crowd. You know, mm-hmm. he had done two films, uh, The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, that had launched him onto this incredible upward trajectory. And and I think that was his base, you know. And 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 then going through that biography over the last uh, week or two, I, it, it also gave me an appreciation for what Bruce Lee had to struggle with in his experiences in the USA. I mean, I knew that he was in Green Hornet and I knew that he'd done a few other, you know, roles in different movies. What I really got from the biography uh, from Matthew Polly is, is how intent he was on and really breaking through the barrier that prevented a, a Chinese man uh, from being a leading character, even though he was admired and uh, and even you know celebrated by guys like Steve McQueen and James Coburn and and others in the Hollywood you know kind of you know elite there, uh, especially among the action guys and all of that, uh, you know there was still a sense that well you just stay in your place, Bruce, you know, and even amongst people who counted them as their, as his friends and you know they they really weren't able to support him to, to, to take the step that he longed for, which is to be fully respected and and endorsed as a creative, expressive artist, not just a guy who can do the flashy martial arts moves. And, uh, you know, he, he took this circuitous route of going back to Hong Kong, maybe even swallowing his pride a little bit, but he, he had to get the paycheck. You know, he had a, a wife and a couple of kids to support, you know, Hollywood was putting up roadblocks or kind of casting him in diminished roles. Uh, he had big ideas, grand ambitions, and an incredible work ethic. Uh, I can see where maybe he was a little bit disappointed or a little bit less than satisfied with this movie as far as his ambitions were concerned, but he, he had to learn how to do this. He had taught himself all of these martial arts techniques he'd studied, he'd sculpted his body, all of that, to get to this point of you know, practical perfection. Obviously, you don't hit the ground running as a director when he's doing all of that somewhat limited budget and and all of the back drama between you know Raymond Chow, Golden Harvest, the Shaw brothers, all the negotiations that he had to go through just to get the permission to make this movie. There's a very fascinating backstory. Michael, maybe you've got some more information along that line, so some some tidbits to throw to the listeners or just to kind of tell us a little bit of your understanding of what Bruce was you know, working through some of those roadblocks that uh, he had to overcome just to be able to put this movie on screen. Well, yeah, and originally this wasn't the idea, what he wanted to do. He was right. trying to do a period more along the line of a, a Western, actually. Um, it just became not very cost-effective, you know, in terms of what he wanted mm-hmm. to do. And so they they switched it up and decided that if they shot some of it in Italy, it might appeal to a broader uh, international base. But the, this film was definitely more maybe thrown together more than, than Bruce Lee would have wanted. Um, and 
like he had finished his two obviously his two films for Golden Harvest, the the Fist Fury and Big Boss, and and they and formed Concord to then do with Golden Harvest and and create this movie, which like as you mentioned gave him that control. And one that was the one thing about Golden Harvest that was so great was that Golden Harvest to help separate itself from Shaw Brothers when um, uh, Raymond Chow and I guess Leonard Ho had left and formed uh, Golden Harvest, they let their directors be a lot more. Uh, auteurish you know where the Shaw's mm-hmm. was very specific you know it's like you're going here you're shooting here etc and Raymond went the other direction said go off and play around and show us what you want you know I mean obviously within limits but it was much more inspired by the 70s maverick filmmakers of the time that uh, that pushed it so Lee did get his opportunity to just kind of all right what do you want to do Bruce you know and they we can't do the western and so he just had come up with this idea and you guys touched on it I think this for instance, this protracted beginning was something that was effective in the last two movies. If you watch The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, there's this building up of Lee finally doing something. And he may have, maybe he took it a little too far in this one in his attempt. But I, what I did like about it was, even though it doesn't always hit correct, is the humor. He was making himself not be this sort of super enraged, you know, straight out of the can of whoop-ass guy. You know, he's he's like almost right. comes across as bumbling, you know, which was... His yeah. <laughs> his way of showing what his he, it was his experience too, and coming to the, when he came to America at eighteen, these are some of the things that he ran into. Yeah, it's seeing him as this demure, soft-spoken character, almost I would say acting out kind of a Chinese stereotype, you know, in the way he sort of mm. passively looks ahead, his his obvious discomfort at looking at this menu, yeah. <laughs> his inability to connect with the waitress, all of that kind of thing. Richard, I know you, you kind of had some comments along those lines, but yeah, let's just go back to that opening section um, before we get into the, you know, to the action and all of that. Uh, what are, what are, you know, what did you make of that? And does anything that Michael and I are saying kind of warm you up to that? Or, or maybe you got that already, but just kind of <laughs> give us your thoughts on, on kind of that opener. I appreciate it more than I enjoy it is what I, the way I'd put it. Right. Like I, I sure, know what, I know sure. what he's, I know what he's trying for. And I know that like, it's a big deal that the film is set in Rome and not, not Hong Kong. And a lot of the comedy has to do with, you know, him being a sort of a fish out of water in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm sure one it plays better to a Hong Kong audience, and it also I did watch the Japanese English dub of it, and a lot of <laughs> it seems like it would not play all that well in a dubbed form. But it's not that I particularly dislike the comedy; it's just that it's it's only comedy for so long in at the beginning of it. Right? Yeah. If, if it was peppered with a, some with something else, I think I'd I'd like it a lot more. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's those, those travelogue bits too, which yeah. again, I'm trying to think, you know, for, for a Hong Kong audience, it's like, wow, there's one of our guys yeah. over there in Rome, you know, and all these landscapes. And, and you know, I would say the great majority of Bruce Lee's most ardent fans you know, never yeah. dreamed of having the opportunity of actually going to a place like Rome itself. And so he is kind of like the local boy who's who's making good. And, um, you know, there's almost is a bit of a, of a, a travelogue slideshow to say, wow, here's some cool stuff, you know, and, you know on the big screen. Um, and there's there's Bruce and Nora Meow driving around in their whatever big, their big Lincoln or continent that they're convertible there. <laughs> it's, a so it's, it's, it's a roll. It's a Pegasus, right, right. So, you know, I, I, it, is, it is interesting to see Bruce kind of rounding out his character. 
Uh, but uh, but yeah, again, if if you're here to you know see what he does best, you know, there's a sense of let's kind of hit the fast forward or chapter skip button and get down to it. So yeah, so at, at the conceit of the film, and and I don't know, that's another kind of sort of somewhat contrived thing is that uh, uh, Nora Miao, this character, she, her dad owned a Chinese restaurant in Rome. He passed away. She's got this uncle. Uh, the the local organized crime syndicate is trying to move in and, and take over ownership. And they're sending these kind of street thugs in to, to harass them and make life difficult so that they'll just sell out and hand over the turf. Uh, Bruce is sent into into Rome uh, from one of her relatives over in Hong Kong to help out. And that's another part of the so-so comedy is like, you know, she's wondering who is this little scrub that was sent and, and how is he supposed to help us out? You know, he's, you know, you can see underneath the outfit that, that Bruce is wearing that he's, he's buffed, you know, he, but, but he's not this little, you know, you know, Clark Kent weaklings type, type. Uh, but you know, he, he doesn't give the impression other than maybe having a few kicks and moves that he's capable of doing the things that uh, a half an hour or so into it when the thugs show up in the restaurant, uh, you know, he, he he surprises and, and, of course, gives the audience exactly what they came to see. So, Michael, you want to kind of walk us through that first uh, restaurant scene and, and what happens in the alley out there? Yeah, you mean when he's – yeah, well, that's what you said is exactly right. If you watch the alleyway scenes, they're all like little tiny steps. He goes into the first time and he just gets ready. He's getting ready to do something. They're holding the pad up like, yeah, show us what you got, man. And and, yeah, and, yeah. and the guy comes out right that moment, the cook, and says – get to work right before he does anything. So it's like, Ugh. and so this is a very intended, <laughs> yeah. you know, thing. And then the second time, you know, he comes in uh, the next time. I mean, we, like you mentioned, we see him a couple of times throwing punches at the mirror <laughs> that that whole scene where he steps out and he's scares himself in the mirror of the prostitute's house. And he starts, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny how he tries to make himself look in this, which I appreciated about his, uh, his, his sort of Jerry Lewis inspired ideas. But then you're right. And then the alleyway again, by the next sequence, he's got a little fight scene in there where everybody's, except for the unicorn character who's unconscious, doesn't get to see it. So he has to go out and prove it again. And this time we see it a little bit more. Now he's really kicking the pads. And the guy he sends into boxes actually was his, has been his child, was his, basically the, the son of his servant of his family. So he's known that, same as Wu Nan, and he's known him since he was like, you know, born. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so just a little tidbit about the, the, the characters yeah. there. So yeah, you're right. I mean, they, he built it up in a, in a slightly different fashion, maybe than we saw in the prior film, where it's sort of he got slapped in the face a couple of times, and and but uh, and but there there was a source of tension where here it's played all for for laughs in the beginning, more or less. And yeah, the whole Chinese boxing thing and that kind of Wolfman Jack lookalike there. He's just like doing <laughs> oh, all that yeah. derision. <laughs> Wolfman, <laughs> you know, everybody you know, says white, about him. <laughs> white, and, and I mean, this guy, he's got a gut. He's got a paunch. He doesn't. He's probably the least intimidating of that of that yeah. whole gang. But he's supposedly the leader. But uh, you know, that that's an interesting thing as well. I mean, Bruce is so swift and so efficient in dispatching these guys uh, he's not he's not really putting on the theatrics you know there's nothing real gratuitous it's just like one punch bam you are out <laughs> who's next you know right uh, i love that scene where he knocks the guy out and then he's sitting on his chest with that kind of uh, you know hands <laughs> folded and looking up it's like you want some <laughs> 
pretty amazing. And then that you're hitting on exactly one of the things that was making him so popular at that time was that that is all part of that American swagger. That's all that Steve McQueen influence. Like he wasn't just like, I'm going to fight you and be angry the whole time. He's like, I'm going to sit on you. I'm going to put my I'm going to put my hand in my chin and just kind of look up like he knew what he was mm-hmm. doing with that. And it was it was exactly uh, it was exactly the right thing to do. It's part of his charm is was his uh, his um, difference from everybody else. Yeah, and the fact that he's taken on these these Western guys, you know, black guys, white guys, tall guys, right. short guys, but he's he's basically cleaning the house, uh, whoever you want to th- send his way. There, and that's an basically in- where we go. There's an interesting go part. I was going to just sorry to cut you off, but there was just an interesting part yeah. in this that you will see peppered in through this film here and there because it was his opportunity to write the script, obviously, which he was intending to do much more in the next film, Game of Death. But he, um, you watch, mm-hmm. he's got his little bits of philosophy through the movie. Like when he steps out into the alley early on and they're all dressed in these karate geese, which is Japanese over being Chinese. There, I think he did that specifically for one reason, really, which is he walks out and you, there's a thing. He's like, we've been teaching them karate. And, and, uh, and he says, you know, and he says, oh, I know Chinese Kung Fu. And he's like, you know, there's some kind of, I can't remember what the comment is exactly, but about the so karate not being the best or whatever it was. And Bruce says, listen, if it makes you look after yourself in a fight, Mm -hmm. then you embrace it. And that was his comment at the time of saying, don't get stuck in styles. It was very traditional at that time. You know, you were Kung Fu style, you were North versus South or karate versus China. And he was that, his philosophy was very different. He was embracing all, anything that worked was what he wanted to do. So there's a little bit, as my point was, there's little bits of that in there. If you sort of know what Lee's teaching style was. Yeah, no, I think that's very fascinating because you're right. I think it was kind of one tradition versus the other. So if I win the fight, this is one point for karate or one point for judo or or whatever, you know, right? because you're representing this larger tradition. You're not just about yourself. I mean, Bruce Lee is, you know, an individual. He is a is a a student of multiple martial arts. And, you know, not that I've gotten deep into the Jeet Kune Do, but I have understood that it is a kind of a synthetic blend and that it's not just blending to come up with a formula, but it's, it's what your own particular gifts and skill set make right for you, you know? And that's, that is, that, that seems right. That's uh, it. That's very well said. Yeah. And, and, and that kind of fits the times. I mean, this is the, this is the sixties or early seventies now where again, traditions and and customs and the way things have always been done are all up in the air and all all being called into question and that certainly wasn't just limited to you know the west uh north america and europe but this was happening in cultures all over the world as they were kind of coming in and bruce of course with his you know split citizenship his you know his you know heritage uh even i think through his mother wasn't she not she was not a pure Chinese, I think she had. She was half German. Half German, German. right? So, so Mm -hmm. he's really this kind of cosmopolitan character, but still very much identified as and with China and and with Chinese culture. So, yeah, Richard, will you have any thoughts on that uh, kind of those opening alley scenes? That seems to be kind of more your cup of tea than (laughs) the comedy skits and all that. Uh, I I think it's basically been said, but yeah, yeah, I. I, uh, I, I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. all right. So what happens after that, I guess, is just kind of we, we see the emergence of Tang Lung or Ah Lung. He he, he kind of has two different names. Either you guys know, like, where does the, 
Yeah, it's really Tonglung. Yeah, you're right. You're T A N G L U N G, which is another. Uh, it's another form of. Uh, it's not little dragon, but it's something similar to that. But yeah, it sounds like there's Alung sounds. I think more the pronunciation than the actual what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hey Richard, I, I you know, let's go back to the scene with uh, Melissa Longo. <laughs> I know that yeah, you had, yeah. you had mentioned <laughs> something on Facebook, and and Michael made a reference. Uh, where she kind of steps out of the out of the room and into the mirror, bare-breasted, and, and all of that. It's a it's a comic bit, but apparently you were doing a little bit of research into her earlier or, <laughs> or subsequent movie career. So tell us a little bit about Melissa Longo. Uh, she's a beautiful Italian actress. So take it from there. She has a really huge Italian career in, yeah. in sort of. Um mostly like low tier low tier sexploitation like uh, she's in a movie called the ribald decameron okay it was that but, kind of uh, capitalizing on some of pasolini's work when he was doing uh that kind it was a hundred it was a hundred percent uh pasolini's decameron was such a hit there are hundreds and hundreds of like well dozens and dozens <laughs> of softcore decameron films made sure. like in the early 70s in uh, uh italy well, it's a really but long think, book. There's a lot of material to adapt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think she'd probably best be known to uh, Western, like West uh, North American audiences, for uh, "Sell on Kitty," the Tinto Brass film, okay. and she's in a film called uh, "Rico the Mean Machine," which is a crime film with uh, Chris Mitchum. Okay, is that uh, does he relates to Robert at all, or? He is Robert's son. Oh, okay, good. All right, thank yeah. you for connecting the dots there for me. You know, yeah, he he did a lot of Italian films in, in sure. that period. Uh, you know, she seemed to have all the assets that you would want for a Bond girl. You know, but uh, maybe that, that her agent never made the right connection there. <laughs> but, all right, good. And, and, and two great titles. She's in the Erotic Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. Nice. And she is in. And she is in. They they called him. Now they call him Sacramento. Possibly <laughs> one of my favorite film titles ever. <laughs> yeah. Now, so so she was part of their kind of sojourn in Rome I think it was just like what a couple weeks or so that they went and did location shots including some of those kind of establishing shots in the Colosseum uh either you guys know much about how that particular jaunt came about I mean was it did there was there a connection that Golden Harvest had with Rome per se or was it just a capital that they picked off the map I mean they could have done Paris they could have done where, yeah, whatever. actually, yeah. I know a little bit about it. I'll just point out that that was the very first thing they shot. They yeah. uh, went out there for a couple of weeks, and actually, the um, the uh, location manager's in the movie. He plays the bank guy that hugs him in the bank. You know, he's like my friend when he gets the money and he gives him a big hug. That guy was actually the location manager. When you look at old photos of them touring around, he's like in all the pictures with them. Um, but yeah, that was exactly what led to everything they shot back in Hong Kong and Golden Harvest. They went out there with Normal. They went out there with Nishimoto Tadashi, the cinematographer, and um, Raymond Chow and a couple other people. And they just were, you, you'll notice, of course, most of those sequences are all handheld. They weren't, I mean, they probably mm-hmm. had some uh, tripod with them somewhere, but they were basically just walking around with a handheld camera and just grabbing stuff. Yeah, and and perhaps the you know the the right to shoot films was not as maybe regulated or as expensive as it is now, but it it almost yeah. feels not exactly guerrilla you know 
uh, street bootleg type of filmmaking, but not that far from it either. <laughs> you know, let's, okay, let's, we got a few minutes, uh, let's get a shot of you in front of this fountain. And uh, yeah, and even the Coliseum. Uh, I think in the commentary track, they talk about how prohibitive it is to film inside the Coliseum at this time. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of amazing because the, in the Coliseum shots, you don't see anybody else around. So like, I don't know how they were able to evacuate it or get in there where, I mean, I don't know what tourist access is to, to the interior there, but it did seem pretty impressive. And even the, the traffic driving around the Coliseum, there's just maybe a couple of vehicles on the road, but they seem to have pretty free reign, which you know i you know again seems pretty remarkable that uh right there in the middle of the city of rome you'd have that much uh you know space between vehicles but you know it was they're they're cool shots and i i think it does add a little extra texture to this film for sure uh so yeah so then the the you know the the the, it seems like the 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 street battles you know kind of escalate uh, and especially when when uh you know guns are, are pulled in Bruce is kind of whittling his darts and and kind of yeah. using some some makeshift weaponry there, um, you know some of that kind of superhuman marksmanship of, of tossing those things, you know walking in the room, bing flings them and and kind of disables a lot of the guys. Um, but I, I guess I want to talk about the double nunchakus because I think that was a pretty spectacular sequence and also a pretty big innovation. Uh, Michael, kind of give us a breakdown of of that sequence and. Kind of, you know, what what you know about the technique and, and how that came about and, and uh, the impact that it made on uh, the early viewers and, and subsequently. Oh, yeah. And as you know, he had just introduced them in the last film in Fist of Fury. Right. And it was such a like a notable moment that, you know, he wanted he knew he wanted to do it again. But so he's like, well, how can I top it? And <laughs> it's like, why don't <laughs> we go for two? You know, yeah. that's the way to do it. And, you know, he had he had learned uh, or was introduced, I should say, is more appropriate to buy uh, Dan and Asanto. Most of the Nunchaku stuff that he had learned, Dan and Asanto will be the one he fights with the Nunchakus in Game of Death. Um, and as Asanto would say, you know, he, he showed Bruce some techniques and then would come back two weeks later and then Bruce was doing it better than he, was, he yeah. showed him, you know, because he was just so obsessive with trying to learn things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea there being that he... Bruce Lee was very understanding that he wanted to try and up himself each time. So here with with the double nunchaku and the staff, it's the first time he'd used the staff mm-hmm. in a movie. So he comes in and uses that a little bit. And and that whole sequence is, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of this uh, today when we look back on these kung fu films. When you watch the choreography, where you see a guy surrounded by ten guys, they all come at him one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, and it's sort of like a, a little bit of a joke where you think everybody's going to rush him. Um, but it was interesting if you watch how Lee plays each one. It's done with something a little. He's not just hitting them. He he has a different little scenario for each one. You know, a yeah, guy comes yeah. in with a knife and he's he's throwing it back and forth between his hands. And at one point, if you watch it closely, Bruce Lee only, only has one at that point. Mm-hmm. He uses the nunchaku to hit it in midair as it's yeah. between his hands. It's a great little piece. And then uh, the other guy, he's literally holding it pulled back with one hand like he's about to fire a, a slingshot and the guy just walks right into it and he just lets go and it's just nail it's almost <laughs> like he just walked right into that bud you know so it's he's got little bits and pieces with each one where he utilizes the one-on-one with him that i think are pretty ingenious and funny at the same time yeah it's a great blend of action and comedy uh richard what are some of your thoughts on the on those sequences uh yeah i mean they're this is where the film really takes off for me <laughs> sure and, uh, <laughs> um 
I would note that the nunchucks seem to come out of nowhere, but like, yeah. he seems to just pull, pull them out yeah. of the back, his back pocket or something. <laughs> but uh, it, I've always admired with Lee how much um, like his his action scenes, his fight scenes seem to tell little stories, like what Michael what Michael was talking yeah, there. Yeah. You know, that you know, it's always like here's a problem and here's how you solve it, and mm-hmm. it, it's so much more engaging than than just having leaping and fl- and flying around as, as the choreography. Right, yeah. Because, I mean, we had seen all of that. I mean, maybe they didn't have, the, the, the fighters don't have the personal charisma, the sexiness, the magnetism of a Bruce Lee. But, you know, a lot of these guys had techniques and, and a lot of, you know, you see a lot of flipping and kicking and, you know, somersaulting across the screen. Of course, the trampolines and that kind of stuff as well. Pretty well established, maybe even tired to a certain extent if you've spent a lot of your time watching these types of movies. But you're right. That's what that's to me what makes these scenes really rewatchable is first of all it's it's the flash and the dazzle and wow, it just kind of explodes off the screen at you. But then you you take a closer look, you might even freeze the frames and sort of see what's going on here with the magic of home video. And you're right, there, there's really an, an intelligent craftsmanship to how each little encounter is, is staged and executed there. And it is. It's, it's pretty pretty remarkable. Uh, little little bits of celluloid to analyze and, and then to understand how these actors, how his, you know, <laughs> counterparts, I mean, they are taking blows. You know, they are, you know, not full strikes, but, uh, you know, you're definitely earning your keep here as a as a as a stuntman or as a as an opponent well and that's a good thing to take in consideration here too which makes it maybe even a little more impressive those guys were not stuntmen you know these guys were yeah, right. pulled off the streets of hong kong the extras and little parts in the movie so they weren't trained in this way yeah. not until the end when you get to you know chuck norris and bob wall and um, and that those fight scenes at the end where you're really getting some some stunt, trained stunt guys in there um, the other thing is what your point was, which I like, too, yeah. is that this film, of all of them, of this, if you're a big boss, and even End of the Dragon, does not rely on wire gag or acrobatics to, or, like, lead on a trampoline and come flying through. It's the one, one of the only film that doesn't do that. It actually stays very grounded. All the techniques are just straight-up martial arts techniques. So, so Michael, I assume you've, you've probably worked with nunchakus. So what is, what is the trick to, I mean, when Bruce is flailing both of those things at the same time, it, it's so symmetrical, so tight, so, you know, so, uh, intimidating. I mean, you know, obviously yeah. the guy had skills, you know, uh, you know, unbelievable, but I mean, just how impressive is that? I mean, how difficult is it to execute, you know, that type of a move without <laughs> knocking yourself in the forehead as one of his uh, adversaries does when he, you know, finds, oh, right. oh I, I got one of these too. Let me show you <laughs> what I got and bop yeah, right exactly. in the forehead. <laughs> well, it is. And I mean, it, he's definitely, there was only one film that I could find where prior to to Lee and Fist of Fury where that somebody used a nunchaku in a film. But um, it, it it is... I've seen people in more modern times that have, you know, you know, taken it to another step, you know, but um, there's no doubt that he was talented at it. I mean, they're they're What they were was that they were for an Okinawan weapon originally mm-hmm. for flailing rice. And and what it became, how it became a weapon is at the time you didn't want to let people know under the under the more times of war that, that you were tra- you were <laughs> training, but that's how you could kind of practice with these weapons. But it was like a tool, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. no, it's just a tool. It wasn't a weapon. So when Bruce Lee 
was introduced, like I said, Dana Sato, and he came along. He just brought it up to a, a level that you, I, I think, actually, Enter the Dragon has one of the most impressive. It's only for a beat. Like, he used it in Enter the Dragon again, but it's just for a real quick beat. He decided, I don't want to beat it to death like I did, you know, the last movie with two of them and the one before that where I pulled out two different times. He just, right. it's a real quick moment, introduces the American audience, but it's almost his most, in my mind, most impressive moment when he's spinning it. Um, but to use two the way he does here, and then as we just said, to sort of incorporate it, like he puts it around his neck at the end and waits yeah. for the guy to make a move and then it cracks it. I mean, he finds different ways of just like using it and then throwing it aside and then fighting. You know, it's he got real creative with it, which is yeah. which is great. And then the technical side, which is when you are using it in simulated combat, you're whipping that thing around, but you're whipping it so that it doesn't actually knock their brains out, you know, because you've right. got to make it look convincing without actually, you know, making a full strike. And that's... You know, uh, these guys had to have a lot of trust in Bruce to say, okay, Bruce, I'm going to throw myself in there and you do your thing just to make sure I walk out of here somewhat intact, right? And not, and not to diminish his his expertise, and it's impossible to do because he is really good, but if you watch the outtakes of Game of Death, there are a few great outtakes where he's like spinning him around. He does clock himself in the head with it. Yeah, like, sure. He kind of stops and he's like, all right, let's take another one, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yeah. but um, yeah, no, he was, he was definitely talented. I've, grown up with those things ever since i saw those movies you know obviously yeah, i right. had to take a broomstick and cut it in half and put a chain <laughs> between it but it was uh eventually uh you know i i amassed a collection of about four or five of them yeah that's that's great all right well so what are some other notable sequences i mean we'll, we'll get to chuck norris and all of that but i guess well, let's talk about uh some of the the side characters we've, we've already talked about um sure. Melissa Longo. Let's talk about Nora Mao. I mean, she she was also in um, in uh, Fist of Fury, and mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty pretty important uh, actress and 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 figure uh, in both of these films. Uh, any any background stuff you want to share with us, and and the role that she plays here? I mean, there's little hints of a love interest, but like uh, you know, like the the action heroes. Uh, that he admired, he, he kind of walks off into the sunset at the end. So you have a little bit of that, what might have been. But uh, what else do you think Nora brought to the story? Uh, well, I will say that Nora made her start at Golden Harvest. She don't, you know, her very first movies were all there with Low Way, The Invincible Eight, The, the Blade Spares None, etc. And then The Big Boss was like her fourth movie. Um, and then she did Fist of Fury, where she, like you pointed out, play, it was the only time anybody played a, a love interest with, with Bruce Lee was in that. So I think part of his reason for utilizing her in a different way. I mean, he liked her and they obviously, you know, everybody was happy with her being with him again since they kind of recycled a lot of the same actors over the course of these movies. I'm actually on a side note, by the way, going to go meet with her probably mm -hmm. later next month, um, uh, which is going to be a big thrill of mine, mm -hmm. cause of, you know, mm -hmm. just to learn a little bit more about the what went behind these movies. Um, You're going to meet but, Nora Mao, really? Is that yeah, yeah I'm going to go out oh, there and, and interview her interviewer wow. for a, an upcoming uh I, I can't say anything about it but it's going to be a, a release there's going to be a blu-ray release of, of of something of of hers probably going to give so that'll give a little hint but anyways a <laughs> tantalizing uh, yeah, little tantalizing taste. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. but it's uh she yeah, so i'm really excited about that because she'd be she's like a big one for me to meet but um in terms of your question i think if you notice what they did with her and his relationship here was it went a different route he kind of plays and it's again part of the humor. This almost eunuch sort of a character, you know. Yeah, yeah, he sees a naked so, woman, yeah. he runs for the hills. You know, mm -hmm. she's like, 
all enamored by him and he's like beats the guy up and he just kind of goes okay see ya good night you know he walks off and he up and he drags the guy out into the hall you know he's very much unsexual this guy you know we're in the past Mm -hmm. one not that he was a sexualized character but he's passionately kissing her and they're in love and so um i think uh i think it was her her very i i even though it may not always have worked i think that relationship with her in this was nice that they tried something different or bruce tried something different Mm -hmm. Uh, who who was the guy who was kind of the the crime boss? He apparently had some kind of uh, ongoing connection with Bruce, and and uh, the commentary tracks that he led a very interesting life. Uh, what do we what can we say about that character? I can't say something about because I knew John. John was a okay. friend of mine, and actually I went and interviewed him two weeks before he passed away, and I'd oh. known him for years just but via email and and uh, phone calls, and then I went out and stayed with him and his brother for a few days and. I, I did, I'm, I'm working on I've been working on a documentary for the last couple of years and, and he was one of the people I put in the documentary so I went out and stayed with him for a few days and just just talked to him about everything and he um, he uh, you know he hadn't done anything prior to this this was really his first thing and he had met Raymond Chow at a cocktail party and Raymond Chow just came up to him and said hey we're looking for American actors to come you know do this Bruce Lee movie he's like Bruce who you know he had no idea who he was even though he was pretty notable to Hong Kong at the time it just to John, he didn't know who it was. John was a world traveler. He's just he was he's just such a big entrepreneur, military guy. I mean, he's been everywhere, and he just settled on Hong Kong, and then uh, went and met Bruce. And Bruce was like, "Okay, you're in. Can you start tomorrow?" <laughs> and they were like, yeah. "He was like, okay, okay, why not? Make a few bucks, have some fun." And uh, little little did he know what he was in for in terms of his his career and his life. He had actually, believe it or not, had done. Uh, a little bit of extra work on a movie. He was in, um, I think it's The Wild Bunch. He's an extra in The Wild Bunch somewhere. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But he he was a, a, a Western man who had relocated to Hong Kong and was doing kind of business type stuff, right? Uh, yeah, kind of from Kentucky. Country. From Kentucky. Okay. And yeah. uh, and uh, that's where his family, most of his family was. And, and But he just, he traveled the world, you know, and he just yeah. went everywhere. And he just, But he really settled on Hong Kong. Once he got to Hong Kong, he came back and forth a few times, but then he ended up staying there almost the length of his life, and then he moved back to Kentucky for the last like six or seven years. Pretty fascinating. All yeah. right, John yeah. Ben, yeah, great, great guy. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I'm pretty interested to hear these stories, and that's definitely excellent that you've got these kind of personal connections with some of the characters you see on screen here. Um, uh, there's another character who I think is somewhat <laughs> problematic. I don't know what the name that he's <laughs> he's kind of the uh, the boss's sidekick guy. Uh, is that is right. that Ho? Is that his name? Wait, uh, Paul Way. Oh yeah, Paul Way. He he was the one who played the translator in Fist of Fury. So yeah. he sort mm-hmm. of plays a similar sort of meek character here. He's obviously playing the the more gay aspect of the character. Yeah, up, obviously, kind of this to, simpering to pansy, I guess would be. Kind yes, of, I mean, you know, not not really the most proper you know uh etiquette or whatever but but and playing this for laughs i i can i can imagine some particularly younger viewers failing to find the humor in some of this i mean i think it's it's <laughs> it's just a goofy humor of a of a, of, of times times past there <laughs> richard you got well yeah on, correct on, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah look at it that way yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I remembered it being a lot worse than it was when I watched it this time. It's like, yeah. oh, I mean, yeah, there's there's a few little side jokes, but I mean, he, he's basically playing sort of a comic character. Yeah, right? he's a buffoon, I, I right? Yeah, I mean, he, 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 it's not played up as 
it's not a very extreme caricature. <laughs> no, it, it, it's. It, I wouldn't say it's you know homophobic or anti-gay. It's it's in in some ways, like I said, Bruce, uh, his character is a bit of a of a Chinese or Asian stereotype. Um, you know, especially maybe in the eyes of Western viewers, this kind of passive meek uh, oriental man uh, at least in that first half hour or so and then you know his his true colors come out and this uh you know the, the dragon emerges i guess is is one way of putting it um you know so anyways i, I don't know we need to belabor the point there but it is it is a character that uh, people may have mixed reactions to to say the least um, I, I found it <laughs> i found it amusing and, and i'm happy to leave it at that <laughs> yeah yeah um any other notable characters as far as you know the 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 restaurant gang the some of the other fighters this unicorn uh that that was bruce's childhood friend he's kind of he was kind yeah. of the de facto leader of this of this group before tang lung arrives uh what's the story here behind yeah that? he had, unicorn and he were yeah childhood friends much like i was pointing out about the butler wunan who plays the other character but Mm -hmm. um and in fact bruce uh right after this movie as a matter of fact had went to help unicorn do his own film that was called fist of unicorn and he went on set for a couple of days and and um like did some choreography to help with some of the fight scenes and then they were filming him shooting the fight scenes and then they end up when they released the movie sticking the scenes with bruce lee in there and it, it turned into yeah. a huge ordeal but but he and I think he and I'm not sure how that was when Bruce was still alive, right? This, this is like yeah, pre Bruce yes. exploitation, you could say, right? Yep, 100. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah he was. So I know I was just going to point out. So yeah, Unicorn was also in Fist of Fury, and and he was not obviously the most talented of martial artists, but you know, I mean, Bruce Lee usually seemed to be much better than most of the people he was hanging around with. Yeah, just not because yeah. he was surrounding himself with people that weren't. Just he was the one that took it the most. You know, he went off and just became so serious about it and. You know, part of the reason he brought guys in like Chuck Norris and, and Bob Wall at the end and Huang and Sick, you know, was that, um, uh, you know, he wanted really talented uh, martial artists to fight at the end of the movie. But mm -hmm. yeah, Little Unicorn, you know, he had obviously playing the sort of antagonist to Bruce in a friendly sort of a way in this. And, um, you know, we haven't gotten to the, the other characters like we mentioned, John Ben and and uh, and uh, the the one that plays uh, Mr. Wang, the the the. The sort of the turncoat in the in the film. Mm -hmm, <laughs> he yeah. was the one that played the Japanese turncoat in the last movie that Bruce mm -hmm. Lee ends up, you know, killing in the uh, kitchen at one point. Hmm. Well, maybe we should start turning our attention towards the big climactic battles. I mean, we, we pretty much see there's there's another pretty good brawl inside the uh, the the mobster's office. There, Bruce does a pretty memorable high kick to hit out that overhead light there that, right. that was pretty impressive there um but yeah he's basically <laughs> making mincemeat out of these guys and tearing up uh, this kind of spacious uh and, and crime, that light crime scene boss just, office there yeah go ahead that light scene by the way was uh also was done in marlowe when he did it with james garner he's got a small yeah. part in the movie marlowe and he uh he does the same thing. He destroys the lamp in the uh, in the office. So and, and just and just it. the force of that kick gets one of his adversaries to kind of meekly walk away because yeah. he just <laughs> does, does not want to take take one of those uh, chops to the head there. But yeah, so so you know we we do have a bit of a of a, a progression here as uh, you know the crime boss recognizes his ordinary street thugs are just not going to be able to cut it, so they're going to have to bring in some some high priced mercenaries here. So I guess they get what. Uh, 
European champion. Um, that's the Bob yeah. Wall character. And then there's a, is it a Japanese karate guy? And then mm-hmm. the final boss is the American, you know? So he's got, you know, three continental champions, so to speak, that kind of creates the, the final obstacle. And again, at this point, the, the, the ruse of this whole restaurant subplot becomes kind of secondary. Like what these guys have to do with whether or not this, this crime boss is going to be able to take over the restaurant is kind of immaterial, but it does give, you know, the, the Tang Lung character, the chance to, you know, overcome sort of the ultimate adversaries uh, as, as we, he starts to find more worthy opponents who are actually going to make him work a little bit harder to uh, you know, to show his his supremacy and and dominance. So so yeah, let's get into those final sequences. Um, know, Richard, give me some of your thoughts as we kind of work our way towards the you know climactic scenes of the film uh, with with the, you know this kind of interesting. Um, they're out in the supposedly in the Italian foothills, uh, which must be just a few steps away from the Coliseum, the way the sequence is cut together. But uh, yeah, what stood out to you as, uh, as we see, uh, you know, kind of Bruce Lee working his way up the chain? I was a little bit puzzled by the, the sort of plot development at this yeah, point where, yeah. uh, where it's like, we'll take him. No, it's no, really. We'll, we'll let Chuck, we'll let Chuck take care of it. <laughs> and, and, yeah. But then there's sort of an elaborate ruse out by the car, out by, the, by those parked cars where, Bob Wall and the Japanese fellow do attack them and get defeated. Yeah, the, right. And, and then they lure him to the Coliseum, which feels yeah. overly complicated. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, maybe you could just have sent Chuck to the car, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they obviously had this footage of the Coliseum and the whole gladiator thing, sort of, you know, is a suitably you know, epic context, but it, it doesn't really make any sense, you know. I, I think they're also trying to set up the double cross, right? Like oh, yeah. to have a location for the uncle to double cross the the surviving fighters. So right. They were, uh, so they need to be, have a location separate from the Coliseum to for the for Uncle to do do his thing, which feels like maybe a needless plot beat, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I it's it, and again, I guess that that is the challenge. You know, Michael, you're a filmmaker. You know, especially in in your career doing action sequences, there is this kind of construction that you have to have some kind of a plausible story as to why these guys are going to be out there, you know, swinging fists and throwing kicks at each other. I mean, there's got to be an excuse or a rationale for all of that. And that's maybe another place where The Way of the Dragon is perhaps subject to some kind of critique, you know, what's, what's the point, but yeah, I don't know. I haven't watched a ton of martial arts cinema, but I I get a sense that it's not really always about the intricacies of masterful plotting and and plausibility to, to, as to why these scenes unfold the way they do. And keep in mind too, these, especially at this time, the majority of these films were not scripted. Like we know scripts, you know, they were not 90 pages with dialogue. They were basically I've actually had heard audio of Bruce Lee talking about his notes for this film. Like he had very different intentions for the end. He actually had two other uh, Chinese martial artists he was going to fight before it was Chuck Norris. In fact, it was became it was going to be this uh, other action. Or not, he wasn't an action star at the time. He was a karate fighter, a guy named Joe Lewis, not the boxer Joe Lewis, but another mm-hmm. guy right. named Joe Lewis that he was going to fight originally, and that didn't work out. So they went with Chuck Norris. 
But there was, an, you know, obviously, a, even when they went to Rome to shoot the exteriors, it was still notes. He just had notes, and he was still kind of figuring it out as he went. And uh, so you're right. I mean, that's going to sometimes run you into trouble. You know, maybe if you're Ter- Terrence Malick, you can do that and get away with it. But it's, it's <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, with 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 Bruce, it's sort of like that is probably. You're right. It's an example of just something that extended. They just figured they could get a- away with it, and yes, yeah. they did. As a matter, of, and I was, I, in fact. At one point, I don't know if you want to, there's a very a missing component to our discussion, which I would love to just put a shine a little light on when we, when you're feeling ready for it, which is uh, his uh, main partner in this, which is his camera, his, his cinematographer. Because there's mm-hmm. a, you know, he's, he's, he's actually arguably one of the more important people in Hong Kong cinema. <laughs> okay. Do you want to get into it right now or is there a place where you had to get up to it? I mean, I could... I'm, I'm open whenever. I just yeah. thought we should bring up a little bit about him, you know, just well, let's, before we, let's... we left. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and, and take that on, and we can get into the final sequence with with Chuck and, and even the other two, you know, martial arts masters. Uh, but let's talk cinematography for a minute. Yeah, well, the the cinematographer in this is a guy named Nishimoto Tadashi. He's a Japanese guy. Um, he had he actually shot in. He was an assistant director on the first um, anamorphic film in Japan, and then he and and when Run Run Shaw took over Shaw Brothers from his, his one of his other brothers ran there were six brothers as a matter of fact i think run run was called mr six because he was the sixth brother but when he took over he was enamored with japanese filmmakers italian and american but especially the japanese process so he started swapping technicians back and forth and one of the people that ultimately came to the shaw brothers was uh, nishimoto and nishimoto um brought with him from toho a camera that was purchased by Run Run Shaw and introduced the anamorphic process to the Shaw brothers. And so when the Shaw brothers uh, got a hold of this and Nishimoto taught everybody how to use it and how it was, how it was implemented because they were working with spherical lenses up to that point. And he shot their first anamorphic feature under Shaw scope, which anybody that follows the Shaw brothers is used to seeing that in Shaw scope sign, which Shaw scope was a, a process of, of basically combining the Koa lenses of Toho scope with um, Dialoscope, which is a, a French system. Anyways, he, he stayed with, with the Shaw Brothers for a number of years. He actually shot King Who's movie at the Shaw Brothers, uh, Come Drink With Me. That was his film. Um, and so he, seven, I think it was 1970, he left Shaw Brothers, opened up his own production company. And that's when Raymond Chow came to him and met with him and said, listen, we're going to shoot, you know, Bruce Lee is, he's like, yes. He goes, we're going to go shoot a film in Rome or part of it in Rome. Would you come shoot the stuff in Rome? And he was like, I run a production company. I can't really do it at first. And he's like, Bruce Lee would really like to use you. And he, cause he had known his work. And, um, so Nishimoto finally made an arrangement with his, I'm just going to go shoot. He just thought he was going over to shoot the, uh, the Rome stuff. And he decided before going over there, he had seen the movie, um, Yesterday, Tomorrow, and Today by De Sica. And they had shot um, that film, I think it was late 50s, 56, 57, but they shot that in Technoscope, which is not, it's, a, it's not really an anamorphic process. It's a spherical camera and, and Technicolor is an Italian company and they put it together. So they decided to shoot Way of the Dragon with, with Technicolor. So when they went, what we were talking about, when they were in Rome and they're running around shooting everything about three or four days in, um, they sat down to, at one of the Rome in somewhere in Rome to watch some of the the dailies, and and they were just all just taken by the look of it. They were just loved it. Bruce Lee was going nuts. He loved it. He thought it was the greatest thing ever. And so they convinced Nishimoto to stay on board to come back to Hong Kong with them. And so he he actually remember he he said in his interview he said 
Yeah, it did look really good. He was like, you know, but what happened was they went back and they started to process at Golden Harvest the the film, but because Golden Harvest had a different processing than Technicolor did, it didn't look as nice. Mm. And so Nishimoto was, I guess, with Bruce Lee one time. Bruce was going, listen, you know, you just if you don't like what you're seeing, kick me under the table and I'll I'll make, I'll change it, you know. And, and Nishimoto felt really bad because the processor he knew him, he knew his friends with Raymond Chow's. It was he didn't want to kick Bruce's legs. He knew Bruce was going to get up and go, you're this is done. And and ultimately they had to sit off. And he just said, yeah, you, you can do better. And so they were going to send it to Japan. I guess originally, but then making this story much shorter. But the uh, <laughs> they ended up they ended up doing it there. It looked great, and so Nishimoto finished the um, finished the production. But I, I just he as a as a figure, and Bruce Lee ended up using him on Game of Death when they were shooting the Game of Death footage, and was going to use him on Enter the Dragon, but he didn't speak English. So when Robert Klaus came along, he, they they couldn't use him. I think I'm not positive about this, and I'll, I'll do a little research maybe that the opening scene that Bruce Lee did direct of Enter the Dragon, Nishimoto might have shot. Yeah. But um, anyways, his his place in the, the cinema, in, in, in especially within the Shaw scope and bringing anamorphic um, shooting to all the, the people like Chang Che and Lao Kar Lung and all the people that ended up using and utilizing it in their, their framing, and it's it's huge. I mean, it's, 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 he's passed away now, and he died, I think, in the late 90s. But um, just that Bruce Lee and him paired up is, you know, it's no small thing. So yeah, I'm sorry, it was a that's, long story, but I just wanted to point out his his uh, involvement was important. Yeah, no, and I I definitely uh, enjoy giving respect and and kind of spotlight to some of these behind the scenes creative forces. As I mean, there are some pretty beautiful sequences in this film, and and the overall look and shot selection, all that. It, this this does feel like it's you know visually a, a pretty appealing film. There there are a few places where it seems like maybe the focus puller wasn't quite as sharp as they could have been, but they had to use what they did. And so, you know, there, there's, there's a bit of a mixed bag, but uh, yeah, this is probably a good time to start getting towards those climactic battles. Um, let's talk about Robert Wall. I mean, he, he was a, a pretty you know, frequent collaborator with Bruce Lee. He's, he, he has this big like scar or some kind of marking on his cheek. <laughs> What's that all about? Is that, was that actually how he looked or was that for some kind of an effect? Uh, it, it didn't make sense to me. Like, you know, was there some significance to that? But it was, it's, it's very prominent. And uh, the few scenes where you get a, you know, shot of his face. Any, yeah. any story behind that or? Well, what's odd about it, and I don't know if there's. I've actually, I've met Bob a few times. He passed okay. away last year. He actually okay. died of COVID, actually. Mm. Um, but mm. he, um, he, uh, what's ironic is that wasn't on his face. He wasn't really scarred. But the, if you okay. watch Enter the Dragon, they scar him up again in that one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like he kind of he gets double scarred. <laughs> okay. Interesting, but uh, you know, so you, you, and you do have some pretty, uh, you know decent sequences where Bruce is not involved, where some of these, these, these final three are kind of squaring off against each other. I, I don't know who the, the Japanese karate guy or what his name is, but Kwang and sick. Kwang and sick. So, so he yeah. and Robert wall have a bit of a showdown kind of showing their stuff before the Chuck Norris arrival there. Uh, but you know, it, it is one of those kind of fateful things. I mean, Chuck Norris was, was certainly very accomplished at this point, but he was far from the Chuck Norris of modern day reputation right. and, and legendary status. But the fact that you have in one of Bruce Lee's final films and Chuck Norris's first on screen performance, these two 
titans of, of action cinema uh squaring off is it's you know there's a certain poignant sadness because you know obviously it was so close to the end of bruce's life and career but uh very fortuitous that they kind of came together at this moment uh but yeah actually chuck yeah, norris, just to point out real quick yeah, is that yeah. he, bruce lee had worked professionally with chuck norris on another film bruce lee's not in it it's called oh. the wrecking crew it's a dean martin oh, film and he, yeah, and he okay. was doing the the choreography and chuck norris is in it so he was he wasn't on screen with them so you're right it was that that fortuitous you know pairing of them for later but yeah you want to tell us a little bit about the wrecking crew richard it seemed like that uh rang a bell with you there yeah it's a it's a dean martin matt helm film oh That's yeah one his, okay uh, yeah. one of his his james bond uh ripoff films but sure. uh chuck I was, I was only gonna say chuck is chuck norris is in that is man in the house of seven joys okay in an uncredited part but so this is really his second film appearance gotcha okay but certainly his first accredited and and you know it does seem like he gets pretty prominent you know uh rival placement i mean even i guess when he was disembarking from that airplane that was actually his arrival at the hong kong airport you know they (laughs) i think was it bob wall is blocking other passengers from exiting the plane so they get a good standalone shot of chuck with his aviators on and you know he's just (laughs) striking the pose and and just looking pretty all-around awesome there but uh you know you know Michael, what what do you have to say about Chuck Norris? I mean, and I'll give Richard a shot at it as well. But uh, you know, how did how did this launch him? I, I guess this is known as the only fight on screen that Chuck Norris ever allowed himself to lose, and and that maybe he himself downplays this just because you know he was second fiddle here. But uh, I don't know. Let's let's just get into into the the, the climactic battle. Well, I think on Chuck's he again, he did do another film for in Hong Kong. It was called The Yellow-Faced Tiger, that he played a bad guy. It got released in America's Slaughter in San Francisco. Of course, it was like by now it was 74, 75, so it was heavily promoting the fact that he was the guy that fought Bruce Lee in, yeah. in Return of the Dragon. In that case, he's fighting a guy named Don Wong Dao, but he was playing the bad guy. Big old mustache, you know, raping women, killing all cops. You know, I mean, it was just, he was a horrendous guy, in it, and he does die in that one, too. Um, but, um, yeah, he, at some point after that, he ended up doing a film called Breaker Breaker. And then of course, Force of, Force of One. I met him right after he did, um, Force of One, which was like a second or third. I was just a little kid the first time I met him mm. and I, I got him to sign a, a, a punching bag for me. I brought, I bought a punching bag on the way to the movie theater where Chuck Norris was touring around doing, you know, back then you tour around the movie theaters to try to promote your, your films. And uh, and uh, then I met him later, much later, as a, a little older, you know, in my twenties, having studied for a long time. And I got to talk to him a, a bit about Bruce Lee. And you know, I remember one of the things he said to me was, he goes, "Yeah, people always talk about how fast he's, but nobody realizes how strong that guy was. Mm. He would do these things where you would just grab him, or and he would want to throw you. And you're just like, it felt like a 250 pound guy was throwing you, but he was only, you know, like 130 pounds. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, Chuck, uh, you know. God bless him. He's a character. He's become like sort of this, this mytho- mythological character, of human oh, being. Absolutely. It's, while he's yeah. while he's alive, which is amazing. Yeah. It's usually <laughs> after you die that somebody makes all this stuff up. But now he's like <laughs> the go-to name for when somebody's invincible. I love it. Yeah. Hey, Richard, what are your, what are some of your thoughts on the big uh, Coliseum showdown there? I, I mean, it's one of the great screen fights. I mean, it's. Um, 
not just like the, the battle of two screens, like screen Titans, right. but, um, you know, it's, it, it's one of the better, one of the better examples of, of Bruce staging a fight where you get a little story about, you know, Bruce, not, mm-hmm. not starting out very well and having to shift his, the way he's dealing with Chuck Norris in order to finally defeat him. It's, it's sort of, it's like, other than some of the fights that you get in the bit a little bit of game of death he shot it's really like one of the like like the essence of what lee does really well in film yeah well i mean he he's seriously challenged here i mean he he takes some pretty hard shots um and you get some good long takes that was what sort of stood out to me these weren't just like quick cut you know pop poses that there there's like i don't know how long the sequences are but you know obviously practiced choreographed they they know what their next move is going to be they know the whole sequence but it's very impressive to watch these two guys two different body types two different styles um uh, but but each responding to each other again i'm not i'm not a fighter i don't have that kind of technical vocabulary or terminology to understand what all those moves are but i certainly recognize um kind of virtuoso performance uh when it's done at a high level like this and uh you know they're not really holding a whole lot back and there is kind of a a a grandeur and an eloquence to the whole the way it goes down you know bruce you know with with some of the the mixed emotions that bruce is showing as you know first of all he's he's taking the blows he recognizes this is not going to be a cakewalk this is not going to be one of these two three strikes and they're flat on their back you know uh not only can chuck norris dish it out but he can take it uh, but there's also that kind of valiant warrior thing where once once he's been kind of crippled kind of disabled you know his his arm is given out dislocated his knee uh, you know he, he re- realizes that we're going to take it all the way because that's just what warriors do uh, you know michael what are some of your other thoughts just on on the the, the choreography the sequence uh, the you know the, the it's it's it, it is a silent film at this point other than the smashing sound effects you know some of bruce's vocals and all of that uh, there's there's no word spoken but there's a very uh, eloquent story being told yeah and, I, and and there's a couple of things notable about the sequence like you were saying i mean it's these two very you know, now look at as prominent martial artists but um there is a little story that's being told in the sequence again a, a bruce lee thing that he wanted to do where you watch the first as you guys mentioned the first minute or two of the fight where he's taking him on in a fairly strict classical you know kung fu versus karate moment and but he's kind of getting tossed around a little bit he's getting punched he's getting knocked Mm -hmm. down it's not all and that's why that moment when he kind of stands up he takes a breath and he gets on his feet and then he starts like bouncing around on his toes like muhammad ali that Mm -hmm. the whole point of that was him trying to indicate through his his choreography you got to you know free up your your side and not get stuck within a style you know that was what he wanted to point out about this and then of course that's where the tide turns now norris is going I, I don't know how to predict this guy i don't know how to how to fix what yeah. bruce lee's adapting to him De- bruce lee took these ideas and took him once you get into game of death and watch actually the footage of him that's outside of the actual movie game of death and watch the whole pieces together you'll see he's it was constant philosophy through those fights but mm-hmm. here you get like you said a silent movie version of it um and then even you know so you have that that moment with these two bare-chested guys fighting at the coliseum you know this this and then at the end when he he kills chuck norris 
which he doesn't clearly want to do. You know, he's like saying, like shaking his head. And but Norris is like, no, I'm going to die like a warrior if I got to die, you know. And he puts the, you know, the gi top on him in a, a sense mm -hmm. of honor, even though he fought him, you know, which is he's playing that sort of country boy martial arts like he says earlier in the film you know in the country all we do is play you know do martial arts and practice you know so he's playing that aspect of of what a, for him what a martial artist is you know in the tradition but also in the uh in his modern version of it so yeah i mean i i love that film for that reason this or this fight specifically mm -hmm. you know the earlier fight with wall and huang and sick are fun there's some good moves in there um and lastly i'd say that one of the things that's also nice about it is that he does a little bit more than Lo Wei was doing with him on his first films. Is he was he relies on, like you said, uh, longer, wider shots. And I think because mm -hmm. he wasn't afraid of his, I don't, you know, like get me tight because I don't look so good throwing this kick or this punch. He's like, no, let's just get it wide because we're both good at what we do, you know. Yeah. And that yeah. confidence comes through because most of that fight with Chuck Norris is very long, not a long shot per se, but a wide shot, you know, very encompassing wide shots and couple you know to the camera sort of you know uh, like that, that he did pick up from low way when he's going at the camera but that's very infrequent yeah and even some slow motion in there that's kind of a cool little effect yes. and that right. that you know when you see bruce bouncing around on his feet like that those are not kung fu moves at all right a, a, a classical traditional uh, chinese martial artist really would not be you know bouncing on his toes um back and forth and side to side in that way uh, would that almost be like a disgraceful or or uh viewed viewed uh, like poorly i mean you know is, is bruce lee kind of creating some scandal almost in in adopting what seems like a very western style and diluting or polluting his form according to the traditionalists anyways well no you you hit on something which is exactly true i mean not everybody fell into that category um, but you're right. He did ruffle mm -hmm. a lot of feathers. A lot of the traditionalists are like, what are you doing? And by that point, like you mentioned, Bruce is, the, you know, the early 70s. He's been like incorporating Muhammad Ali into his stuff. Jack Dempsey fencing. He's like throwing everything in there. He's like learns from it all. And uh, but that was also the reason why he stuck out. Like people were like not used to seeing that at that point. You know, after afterwards, it became almost like commonplace to see Kung Fu guys doing that same kind of moves, you know, but yeah, at the time, yeah. you're right. Hmm. Interesting. Richard, I think there's another element to the fight sequence that you probably appreciate. It's our cat commentator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, when you said there's, it's all one shot, I'm like, no, there's, a, there's cuts to the kit. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that really is. I mean, it may seem a little silly or gratuitous, but I actually enjoy that. I mean, because, you know, the way the cat's head is positioned, you're tracking its eyes, its expressions. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely a commentary being delivered here. <laughs> And, Actually, and a, that, and a, I think that cat was Bruce Lee's cat, as was the car that they the the boss drives up at the end. So the Mercedes, like, that's right. Yes, yeah, that was yeah. his car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So I think we've covered the, the main highlights, um, and uh, yeah, I think we've already kind of referenced that kind of walk off screen, the kind of uh, you know what could have been thing uh, where they where they go to the graveyard and. And, uh, you know, Bruce and Nora part ways. Uh, any other aspects to the film that we want to you know, point out there before we before we close this episode now? I'd say one thing about sort of the a lot of the a lot of the negative. Yeah. Like feedback you get on this film. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, 
a lot of the elements of this film that are really novel at the time it was made are really very familiar now. Sure. And I think right. a lot of people see it and they, and you know, the fact that this is set in modern times and mm-hmm. it's very, you know, like very street oriented as opposed to like weird, like acrobatic martial arts are not things that people see in it. You know, they've seen films that have, are really indebted to it, like rumble of the Bronx or something, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That use the same basic plot structure. So, and with maybe a little bit more advanced or sophisticated filmmaking, yeah. so some of the extra elements, some maybe the story connects with viewers a little bit more. Uh, it feels maybe a little less hokey, you know. And 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 again, a lot of these films were were playing to an audience that had seen a lot of martial arts, or maybe to a, a non Hong Kong, non native Chinese audience. Uh, as this one, I think clear, clearly was. I mean, that was still where Bruce Lee's you know, bread was buttered, you know, the Hong Kong base yeah. was, was kind of where he had made his fortune. And I think, you know, even though he had ambitions to connect to a global audience and certainly make it into Hollywood, uh, this was not the film that was necessarily going to put him there. He just wanted to show Hollywood, Hey, I can do more than just action stunts and bit parts. Yeah. And when you see a film that has a giant footprint, you tend to miss the fact that it has the footprint. Like you see, mm-hmm. all, you, you've, you've seen the things that are indebted to it. So you don't see necessarily how original this was at the time. Yeah. Right? And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's seen with a slightly different set of eyes. It's actually quite a great film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a landmark and obviously in the all too brief, uh, you know, uh, filmography of Bruce Lee, it's, it's an essential work, you know, like criterion says one of his greatest hits. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is this is a you know a pretty pretty valuable entry and one that I think Bruce's kind of personality uh, comes through. I mean, he <laughs> the guy's so loaded with personality that it comes through in all of his films. But uh, yeah, I, I think this one is is pretty unique and and pretty important. So yeah, okay. Well, let's go ahead and just do a little roundtable uh, before we wrap things up. Richard, any any uh, particular news announcements? I guess I do want to get to Michael and whatever he's up to. But uh, yeah, how how is it going for you? <laughs> the same as always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for the confirmation. So, Michael, you you've alluded to a few projects you've got in the works. I know sometimes there's little uh, under wraps components that you're not allowed to disclose just anything but uh yeah tell us what you, you it seems like you're always got something going on the the bruce ploitation bible and 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 other stuff so what what can you share with listeners you've already kind of shared a lot of your experiences your your personal connections to some of the the cast of this film but uh what else is going on in michael's world i uh let's, i well in terms of the blu-ray world in terms of what we're kind of this the first time yeah. we're talking about i i uh I've done, I got a couple of films that, that I worked on, some Blu-ray releases that are coming. That I can, the ones that I can say are the Shaolin Plot, which was Sammo Hung movie, also Golden Harvest. Um, I did an audio commentary with Frank Jang on that, and then two others, um, Dreadnought and uh, Knockabout. They're both Blu-rays that I did audio commentaries on. Um, I actually did <laughs> seven or eight commentaries in the first two months of this year. So there's a wow. number that haven't been. Yeah, there hasn't been. Uh, haven't been announced yet um but uh yeah it's been a busy in terms of the people wanting me to come on board and help with these films i i just signed a a deal to go direct some documentary content for a pretty big release that's going to come out too that let's just say ties into what we're talking about um so i'll I'll keep you posted on that you know working with some of the top 
some of the top. It's not Criterion, yeah. <laughs> but it comes <laughs> comes it comes along that line though. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and that which has been great. You know, I, I it's, it's a part of like normally I work in the narrative film world or the documentary film world, which I loved, and but it's kind of nice to sometimes get a chance to nerd out on these films that you know I get to talk about like with you guys and yeah and yeah. um and so doing that has been has been a lot of fun like I mentioned I'm gonna hopefully be meeting with Nora Mao in the next few weeks um and then uh I you know I, I wrote a, a script with Dolph Lundgren many years ago that we are just getting into production now so I'm hoping by this time by next month we'll be we'll be shooting it looks like it's pushing ahead so it's kind of nice to get that off your plate I, i've i've had some projects whether they're scripts i've written or or films i've shot that are when they're sitting around for one reason or another the post-production slow or or you know the the script can't get sold or whatever it is it starts like i start getting really antsy <laughs> like yeah, get that yeah. i mean granted I, I don't get married to every script i write and think it's going to get made you know but some of them are like you know kicking around so i mean i've been you know it's been for considering, I mean, I had my car stolen back in uh, in January, <laughs> oh, the day man. before my birthday. I uh, I was actually shooting a, um, I, I mean, I can say with a little with a smile now, even though it was a little trauma traumatic at the time. Not traumatic; it's too big a word. But I had shot a documentary on my grandmother for that I was shooting up to her hundredth birthday, and mm. it was because she's got dementia, and I wanted to. And I my grandfather had been shooting footage of my grandmother back in the forties and the thirties. And, and it's just like all the elements, I've got my great, great grandfather on audio, you know, I had all this, so it's putting together a really nice documentary and she passed away a month before we hit her hundredth birthday. Mm. So right at mm. that stage, I was just wrapped, getting ready to wrap up the dot, which is fine. That was the, yeah. that was the way it was meant to go. And it's part of sure. the story now. And, and, uh, but then like a week after I lost her, my car got stolen. <laughs> it was like, it was kind of an interesting start to the year. But that being said, I'm, I'm very grateful for what's going on and, you know, and happy to just uh, get the chance to, you know, do my thing and be yeah. creative and listen to listen to the your podcast when it pops up. Thanks. <laughs> now, your grandmother isn't Betty White, is she? <laughs> no, that's right. Very similar. They're very close. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. and I I just wanted to ask as a as an aspiring or maybe a more of a fantasist a, a commentary track myself i would love to do something like, like do you actually like literally sit down and watch the movie and talk into the microphone as the movie is playing or did you have more of a script i'm just kind of curious about the logistics of how those things are put together well first good to know i mean that's now that i know that I, i've actually got more coming up maybe you might have a good time doing one of them but i um i uh <laughs> as you know with the bruceploitation stuff yeah, i've got yeah. a a huge uh, project that's been in the works i mean it's it's not tiny it's been like but yeah, you're, it's exactly what it is. We put the movie on, and and like the ones I did for Shaolin, Shaolin Plot and um, are your uh, is Eureka, and um, I was there's also a box set by Eureka called the Joseph Quo box set, which anybody that's like interested in martial arts films, it might be an interesting one to to pick up because it's their Joseph Quo was a very independent director who shot a bunch of films in the 70s. Um, and uh, I did two of the films on that world of Drunken Master and the Seven Grand Masters. But yeah, we just we put the movie up and, you know, we just uh, I normally what I do is it's, I just I make a bunch of notes for myself and I yeah, just have sure. have them on my phone or my iPad. And then I just we just sit and we start watching and just talk as it goes, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. Well, Richard and, and Michael, both you guys did great. And Michael, thank you so much for all the bonus content. You know, I, I always love having you on and. Yeah, you certainly, uh, you know, 
filled a lot of gaps in my knowledge and brought a lot of insight into the film and and richard's always good having you on just to to chat movies and and kind of get your takes on things so uh, richard and i are going to be back for our next episode very soon we're going to be covering shaft's big score which is actually yeah yeah. well you know it's been on the criterion channel and it's been on my my playlist for a while but of course uh criterion will be releasing a shaft double feature uh the original shaft as well as shaft's big score in 4k i think was it in in june It's, it's down the road a little bit there so a little anticipation of an upcoming Criterion release, and it is back on the channel again. So uh, we'll be getting into some black exploitation stuff, and uh, <laughs> there, we're going to throw another bonus movie uh, in there called Top of the Heap, which is a, a 1972 release that came out in May of that year. So we're going to go backwards in time and do another uh, double feature, uh, a couple films, one by Gordon Parks, the other one I don't know who the director is, but uh, since it came up on the channel as part of their uh, black exploitation bundle this month, uh, we're going to throw that one in the mix as well. So that is what's coming up next on Criterion Reflections. Uh, thanks again, guys. It's been a fantastic evening. Really uh, delighted with uh, with the chat and looking forward to how this all turns out once the editing is done. So listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we'll be coming back at you really soon. Good night. <laughs>